City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. City Limits, it's the third Wednesday of the month. We're talking housing today and we've got two of our regulars, Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing and Shane McGrath from Housing for the Aged Action Group. And I'll just open the program because I've got an empty cup here. Hang on a tick. There we are. That's done for the show. We've poured the tea. And um, I'm Kevin Healy. Meg Kimber's out there. Karina's pressing the buttons and doing a magnificent job for the first minute. Meg, you've got a story for us. That's right. Morning, Kevin. I think you probably have seen this, but yesterday, that being the 14th Sunday in The Guardian, um, they reported on journalists at The Age expressing alarm over increasing politicisation and loss of independence. The two um, articles that they that the journalists there were uh, referring to was a lead story, Activists Planning Trouble at Protest on Friday the 5th of June, which claimed activists had threatened police with physical abuse ahead of the rally. And uh, the the uh, journalist uh, wrote a letter to the um, executive editor, James Chessel, and fellow Nine Executives Chief Digital and Publishing Officer, Chris Jantz, and Age Editor, Alex Lavelle. Um, the journalist said they were worried about maintaining the reputation and independence of the paper because editors were putting pressure on reporters to produce particular angles. They said that the claim that activists had threatened police with spitting and abuse was not backed up beyond one unnamed source. And um, there was also an editorial that staff expressed concern about that said that Australia does not have a legacy of slavery and the paper took nine days to correct that editorial. Did you see that, Kevin? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Ever since Channel 9 took over, you knew there were going to be changes, of course. And um, and I think it's noticeable in the financial review as well, where they've become even more conservative than they were, mm-hmm. which is hard to believe. But um, you're right, I, I had dinner before before this whole corona thing blew up. I had dinner with a, a mate who is a journo at the age, and he was saying, I think I might have reported it on air, in fact, that journos are having their byline on stories, but in fact, in somewhere between them and it coming out, the opening paths and things are being changed to give a whole new reflection to what they're saying. Wow. Uh, but their their names are still appearing on the story. So it's quite a serious move, yes. That is, isn't it? Of- Journalist integrity and people's own reputations and upholding the idea of journalism, at least in theory, as impartial reporting. Yeah, I mean, it's quite frustrating. I know as a journo with your name on a story, even if there's a an accidental printing error or something where it, which changes something over, you feel really bad about it because it's not what you wrote, but that's accidental. But they're doing it deliberately, and it must be awful for the journos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but look, I, I wanted to open with some a serious matter that I've noticed over these several weeks of lockup with both you and Karina, unfortunately, or Karina and you, to be grammatically correct. There's a report from Australian National University, and I think you two are good examples of this. <laughs> that more women have turned to alcohol during the COVID-19 <laughs> crisis. Um, and I'm starting to worry about you both, that's all a bit. 
I feel like I want Karina to come in on that, but um, <laughs> she's just, just put her producer hat on and just is like staying silent. But I don't know. I feel like we need to band together here, Karina, and, and defend ourselves. <laughs> Hi there. I'm, I'm not sure. I think, I think people in general are <laughs> turning more towards alcohol. I'd like, to see, I'd like to see the difference in statistics between men and women doing that. But <laughs> Yeah, maybe we just started at a lower amount. Oh, I don't know. Well, hearing you in recent weeks, I'm not so sure of that. But I've, <laughs> I've, uh, I've got to, I've got to say that uh, I won't, I won't make any personal admissions in this area. On a different note, the Herald Sun last. Let's have a look at the Herald Sun for a bit, at least. It was a, it was a wonderful good news story that young boy William Callahan being saved last week who spent two nights in the bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, the young, young autistic boy, and it was a great story, but. In terms of the events taking place in the world at the moment, I think the first seven pages of the Herald Sun last Thursday with no other story in the first seven pages is probably going a bit far wow. on one story of really you know, squeezing everything you can out of it. When was that, Kevin? When did he say last week? It was last Thursday. It was the day after he was found. But they had the first seven pages, you know, the usual thing with pictures and stories all over the place. But... It warranted a yeah, warranted a good story because it was a good story, but I don't think seven pages in the in the current world or any time, but in the mm. current world situation, I don't think it's the most important thing in the world. It was critically important for him and the parents and the you know, the people involved. But my goodness mm. me, especially when, like you say, like you can't take that as a neutral choice when there's so much happening around the world and and especially a lot of focus on. Indigenous and Black and people of colour, their their rights and communications about that. Yeah, we'll come to that because well, I might, I might come to that now. You to raise that. I was had it a bit further down my list, but I'll bring it up. Um, the over here uh, in Western Australia, a bus company, Transwire, which is actually part of the Public Transport Authority in Western Australia, mm. got fined two thousand dollars last week for forcing Aboriginal people to sit at the back of the bus. We're almost back to the American civil rights era here. Wow, yeah. An Aboriginal woman requested a seat near the front for herself and her grandchild when booking tickets on a route from Geraldton to Perth late last year, but was told to sit at the back. And uh, when she realised other Aboriginal customers were also being seated at the back of the bus, she complained to the commission Commissioner John Byrne, this is the commission, is the um, the Equal Opportunity Commission in Western Australia, said Transwire acknowledged her empl- the employer responsible did not follow its policy, although the officer claimed he acted in good faith and they paid two thousand, reimbursed the fares, etc. But so it's still going on here, unfortunately. Uh, well, we know it's still going on here. I mean, that's why people are marching, but it's even yeah. even to that degree, and they just don't learn. Like in America. Speaking of not learning, I mean, after all that's been going on, another black got shot by a white cop and killed at the weekend. I mean, it's just yeah. unbelievable. Well, it is believable because it's America and it's um, and well, it happens in these sort of countries. But in the meantime, Tony Abbott, who's now you know got the highest honour in the country the other week for incredible services to destroying the public sector, mm. he has attacked anyone who wants to question. Rhodes statue at Oxford where he, you know, Abbott himself was a Rhodes scholar and he's condemned the movement to take down statues of Rhodes the, who we know of course um, we set up what was then Rhodesia and became Zimbabwe but also you know his whole wealth was built on exploiting black people whom he, he really considered to be inferior beings 
but Tony's come out supporting him and um, saying that uh, pulling down statues of past heroes is cultural vandalism of the worst sort, he said. Oh. He hasn't said anything about the blowing up of uh, sacred sites in Western Australia by Rio. No. Or the fact that BHP's been given permission by the same authorities to blow up a few more. Yeah. And they report, I think I saw in The Australian after after that that incident of, of destroying those Aboriginal sacred sites, that they said, who was it Rio Tinto, wasn't it? They, the headline Rio was... Rio Tinto in this case, yes. The initial one, yeah. And and, they all do it. Yeah, and but the headline there was like a front page like down the bottom of the Australian I think the day after that said Rio Tinto had second thoughts. Well, no one's making them. Like if you don't don't do it if you have second thoughts and stop doing it, you know. That's right. There's first thoughts. Well, there were stories on the ABC on Monday morning. A recorded meeting with the head of Rio here in Australia, uh, which said he he didn't regret blowing them up, but he regretted the hurt it did to the Aboriginal people. I would have thought there was a bit of a correlation there, but anyway, he separated the two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's like Scott Morrison saying if he offended someone, saying that slavery hadn't happened, then he's sorry people are offended. (laughs) Um, It's a real half half assed apology. (laughs) Uh, Of course, we would say anyway that everyone employed is a wage slave in this country anyway, and it's just just the level of slavery, really, whether you get paid nothing or you get paid a percentage of what what your labour's worth. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I don't think he'd see that one. (laughs) Actually, one of the better ways of of making sure that you overcome the coronavirus, COVID-19, is what Bolsonaro's done in Brazil. He now, because they've got the, the second highest in the world and their death rate per day now are highest in the world, I think, he's now decided they're not going to report them anymore at all. Uh, that's one way around it, I would have thought. Yeah, he stopped reporting the cumulative toll of the virus altogether. So that means apparently they're not dying. I don't know. Who's presume not? That makes sense. Yeah, mm. oh, clearly it's very sensible. But speaking of sensible people, just as a by the by, a person from Mount Evelyn writing a letter to the Herald Sun says that the demands that unions are making on the builders for the North East Link could sink the Victorian economy entirely. And the headline is, unions will sink Victoria. So apparently, if you go for wages, you're going to bring down the entire state economy. Jeez. Wow. If they can't afford to pay people wages, maybe the economy is not that good. No. <laughs> this is serious, isn't it? It is. And, and on that same issue, or not quite the same, the Westgate Tunnel, the other one on the other side of Melbourne, mm. the Herald Sun editorial, I'll just read the headline, Dan must dig us out of a hole. But of course, the <laughs> hole has been created by two private companies having a personal, having a dispute over the whole thing since they found the contaminated soil. But somehow now it's Dan's fault and he has to sort it out. Mm. So there you are. Okay. But a good... A good news story this week uh, from the World Trade Organization of all places, we might recall that when Australia went for plain packaging of cigarettes, the tobacco industry was apoplexic and went purple, whatever color the thing was on their cover, Uh, Mm. and they took Australia to court over it at the time, but there was an earlier ruling by the WTO that it was okay and a number of other countries are now doing it. In fact, France, Britain, New Zealand, Norway, Ireland, Thailand, and this year, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Turkey, Canada, and Singapore have all bought in plain packaging, but the tobacco industry has been relentless. After that, Philip Morris set up an entity in Australia so it could sue us 
mm. under the um, whatever that thing's called the pre-trade agreement mechanism, investor-state dispute settlements, which we've always been opposing, ISDS. And they took us to court in Hong Kong, if you recall. And mm. in, in that case, they lost. But then they, they tried again. They went back to the WTO, and it's taken about five years for them to hear it again. Uh, but they ruled against it. Then they appealed to that body, the World Trade Organization, and it made its final ruling last year after five years or six years before it. And they have ruled again in favour of Australia. So the industry has lost its final appeal, which is which is good news. That is good news. It is good news, although the Hong Kong case alone cost Australia thirty nine million in legal costs, so it wasn't without cost, but wow. we have at least uh, we have at least seen off the tobacco companies in fighting that one. So uh, yeah, that was a uh, the other point about the appellate body it's an it's a cider point. Uh, but of course, it this was the last ruling it has it will make, and unless it can get people on it again, because because Trump's opposed to it, they must have made a ruling against America or something, and so he has been. I don't know why, why he has the right to do it, but he's been vetoing all appointments to the appellate body, so it can no longer meet because it hasn't got a quorum. Wow! And so effectively, there's no appellate body at the World Trade Organization thanks to Trump. Gosh, that does seem. This doesn't seem like a, a lot of power. I mean, there is America and France and England and a couple of other countries have have really more power within within the group than others. Is that right? Or is, am I just making that? That's the case. Well, certainly at the UN Security Council, you know, there's five that have the right of veto. So if, you, if they attack Russia, Russia vetoes it. Take America, America vetoes it. They take China, China vetoes it. It's, right. It's, yeah. Okay. It's an interesting situation not to have an appellate body. That's right. And to have that so yeah. subject to American interference. And he's done it deliberately because he, uh, you know, he gets uh, he's upset. They must have ruled against an American company or something. I don't know why, but he's it's been in the news for some time now. But this, they're just that the story about that tobacco decision said it's the last decision they're going to make because they no longer exist effectively. Wow, that's concerning. Yep. Another interesting story, because the Perth Mint, uh, which is sort of attached to the British Mint as well, and it makes gold coins and does all sorts of things with gold, and it's it's actually owned by the West Australian government. There's a link to the British government. And Sam Walsh, who used to be head of Rio Tinto, the company that so so admires and respects Aboriginal artefacts and caves and things, He's the chief executive of, or sorry, he's the head of uh, chairperson of the Mint. But it's been revealed that they get gold from a number of places, but they get gold from a PNG, a number of places in Papua New Guinea. And the gold mines they use practice child labor and they degrade the environment through mercury and they get charged occasionally for that. And a particular company they use called Golden Valley, the head of that, a bloke called Justin Parker, two years ago got 13 years for manslaughter after beating his helicopter mechanic to death. Uh, but he was released on parole last year, so he only did a year. And we get we get our gold, we get gold from this particular company that uses child labour. You know, they, we talked many times about the way that our companies in those places totally destroy the environment. So they're a pretty respectable company. Yes, quite respectable. 
And the, the head of the company said that, um, well, in a country like Papua New Guinea, all the family get involved. So that explained the child labor bit because the kids like to go to work with their parents and work amid the mercury and the pollution and, and all get the same diseases. So that's, that's the case. But then after that was made public last week, a bloke called Stephen Rogers, who's the auditor for the, for the Mint, said that he had no idea about this at all. And he's, he said he's detailed a compliance regime lacking any substantive investigation and one where only minimal checks were conducted across the supply chain. So he was the auditor, but he wasn't checking anything. For that, that implies anyway, uh, only minimal checks were conducted. But then uh, he later says, a clo- uh, he later comes out and says that the Mint's responsible gold sourcing processes were very mature and robust. The Mint fully compl- was fully compliant in all 84 categories in assessing the last seven years and did not find a single instant where non-compliance was even considered to be low. But uh, I don't know how they worked that out, seeing there's no, according to him, no substantive investigation anyway. Right. But it seems that um, we just didn't know. So now we know. We'll wait and see what happens, I suppose. But uh, yet again, and again, that's another example, of course, of exploiting black labour and, uh, and non-white people. Absolutely. And and an, and another example of companies within particular industries basically just self-regulating. And I think that's that example of they've got their own checklist of sort of due diligence, which is not very thorough or robust. And then they tick off their own checklist and they say, well, we've passed the, we've passed the test. So um, anything can be happening further down the supply chain, but they've ticked the boxes so they're, they're immune to any kind of criticism. Well, you set the level at Norton, you usually meet it. Yeah, you can usually get there, yeah. On, on a similar line, Ben Wyatt, the Western Australian Treasurer and Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, and he's one, I suppose, at least he's one of the very few Minister for Aboriginal Affairs who happens to have some Indigenous blood in him, but he, and he's the bloke, of course, who he, well, he didn't approve the Rio Tinto one. That approval was before this government came in. But he has approved the BHP one, which uh, is about to, uh, which, well, they, they're putting it on hold at the moment, I think, until things settle down, then they can blow it up. Mm, when people aren't watching. That's right. But, but he says that traditional owners in, in Western Australia value the mining industry, which brings so much wealth to them and to the country and to everyone else. And so he's defending the whole thing on the basis that, the mining industry brings such wealth and the Indigenous people, he says, support it for that reason. Yeah, that's a pretty classic thing to say. It certainly is. And last week we also mentioned that there was a proposal by a federal body set up to get the economy back on its feet by Morrison, headed by a bloke called Nev Power, an exporter skew executive who now is also involved with a mining company, it's called the Coordination Commission. And we mentioned last week, they're suggesting there be a pipeline from Western Australia to the east of the country to bring gas across. They, but they want it to be subsidised by the public purse. Good news is Woodside Petroleum, Peter, Peter Coleman, the head of Woodside Petroleum, says, look, they're not absolutely in support, but they'd certainly use it and, and send gas and probably charge for the gas even maybe if they send if the government did come up with the money. So, you know, they're, they're quite reasonable about this, I think. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. And, of course, when we get on to housing later, we'll talk about money being thrown out again at uh, housing, but not at public housing, but we'll get to that. 
And on a similar vein, again, Qantas and Virgin, the two airlines, obviously, uh, they get JobKeeper, but they also get a separate grant. There's a grant that went, there was an aviation support program developed early in the period of coronavirus. Mm. And they get both. But they claim they're not double dipping because they claim they're not double dipping. I think that's the only reason they say that. But the head of the National Party, Deputy Prime Minister McCormick, he made the point that the support package and JobKeeper serve two different purposes. He says the purpose of underwriting these flights has been to maintain these networks and keep airlines flying, while JobKeeper is focused on ensuring employees maintain connection with their employers. So clearly, in his terms, the first one is to help the airlines, the second one is just for the workers. So the fact that we're paying Qantas and Virgin's wages bill apparently is in the interests of workers and doesn't help Qantas or Virgin at all, which seems to be the case, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure if that's completely correct, but um, it's an interesting no, idea. You'd have to say there might be a question mark under it. Uh, Shane is here, so we might take just a quick break and then we'll be joined again by Shane, if that's okay, if it's not urgent. That's okay. That's very okay. good, in fact. But <laughs> <laughs> We're listening to City Limits on 3CR and after this break, back with Shane McGrath from Housing for the Ace Action Group. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Hi, it's Ronnie Karenu here from the Voice of West Papua program. I joined the 3CR Community Radio back in late 2009 as a volunteer, a programmer, and also a staff member. And I must say that 3CR Community Radio is the only community station that has been able to bring the voices from diverse community backgrounds and various campaign groups and for those people to be able to tell their own stories. And that is unique. You can't find that in any other stations or in mainstream media. For me, as a West Papuan, to be able to tell my own story and to give an update, that is special. It's important to support Tricia Community Radio this time when everything is in uncertainty. Much love to our Tricia Community Radio staff and volunteers for their tireless work in keeping this station going. Thank you. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Okay, back on City Limits, and we're with Shane McGrath from Housing for the Aged Action Group. And Shane, uh, from your perspective, anything to report this month? Oh, no, no nothing happening in the housing world. Uh, it's just been such a quiet time. No, no. It has been pretty quiet, hasn't it? Yeah, I knew you'd be speechless. <laughs> the, um, I mean, I guess one thing to report on is the kind of the unrolling of the Victorian government's emergency rental laws that they passed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so I think I've talked on this show before about um, Hag's perspective that, you know, 
Andrew's promised an eviction moratorium. Even Scott Morrison was talking about an eviction moratorium in the legislation that was passed. That's not really what we've seen. Essentially, what the Victorian Parliament decided was that um, rather than eviction moratorium, as in a ban on evictions, they would allow most of the grounds for eviction that are, that are already allowed. But instead of just serving a notice to vacate, the landlord would have to apply to the tribunal and the tribunal would have to decide if it was reasonable and proportionate in all the circumstances of that case uh, to evict the person, to terminate their tenancy. So to me, that was kind of a buck-passing move. So the parliament, you know, said they would offer a moratorium. They didn't. They just said, actually, we'll just get someone else to decide what's fair and what's not. VCAT has now published its first decision about uh, whether an eviction was, was reasonable and proportionate in the circumstances, a decision called Coe versus Thomas. Um, and it was circumstances where the landlord's mother wanted to move into the rental property, which is fa- fairly common. The tribunal looked at the argument. So the tenant was represented by an advocate or a lawyer from West Justice, and they argued that the intent of the legislation was that tenants should be protected against eviction, um, that eviction should be treated as a last resort in light of the pandemic. And the tribunal member looked at the legislation, looked at the purpose of the legislation, which is part of the, the text, looked at the second reading speech, which is some sort of extra textual material that tribunals and courts use to interpret like the, the intent of a legislation, what the parliament wanted, and found that, it, that that just wasn't the case. There was nothing in the actual text of the legislation or the sources that a, a tribunal is bound to rely on that said the, the reason for this is to protect tenants. Uh, and so the tribunal in that instance did make a termination order. So I felt vindicated, not just me saying this isn't an eviction moratorium. The tribunal, in fact, the deputy president of the of the tribunal, so the essentially the head of the residential tenancies part of VCAT, agreed that it, the purpose of the legislation wasn't to protect tenants. Um, I think he has correctly interpreted the legislation um, in the, in that. You know, I don't think he's wrong, uh, but I do think it, it, it's a further indictment of the legislation that was passed and the lack of adequate consultation from the government. Uh, before they push this list through. What, what, so the tenant was forced to evict her to leave? Um, well, so there, there was a time period before she would have to leave. So she has, wasn't forced to leave immediately. But yeah, the, the tribunal made an order terminating her tenancy. Well, if the point of the legislation isn't to um, protect tenants, what is it? Well, that's a good question. I mean, in terms of the, the <laughs> of the legislation, the purpose of the emergency rental laws is to amend the functioning of the Residential Tenancies Act which obviously isn't any kind of like a you know, normative or, or kind of value claim about what it's trying to do. We heard the Premier say that he, he wanted an eviction moratorium. But again, if he wanted that, it needed to be encoded into the legislation. Um, even something like saying that the purpose... You can say that the purpose of legislation is to protect tenants. You know, I, I, I'm not an expert, but I think the Australian consumer law uh, has as one of its purposes to protect consumers. And that colours how you read the how you're supposed to read the legislation, but there's nothing like that in these emergency rental laws. So, so is it more a failing in the way the thing was worded in the first place? I mean, it's I think it's a failure of conception. Like the the problem is with the the idea that the parliament can just delegate to VCAT the power to decide what's reasonable and proportionate in a given case. If they want to protect people mm. from eviction, they have to say no evictions, or they have to say you know no eviction with these very rare and narrow exceptions. The tribunal's everyday business is to evict people. Like, that's the, the overwhelming majority of the matters that it hears is landlords applying for possession. 
Of course, the tribunal will find that it's reasonable and proportionate to evict people. The tribunal doesn't think that its everyday operations are unreasonable and disproportionate. Uh, and this is a case where the tenant has done absolutely nothing wrong. Look behind him, the rent, not done anything except be there yeah. and then be told you've got to go. Yeah, I mean, the circumstances of the case were quite uh, pretty sad and, and distressing on both sides. Uh, sorry, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe the tenant was an international student who's found themselves, uh, you know, with their income very much reduced because of COVID reasons. Um, on the other hand, the landlord's mother, who previously was living with her, is now exposed to pretty significant health risks because the kids are going to school and things like that. So that you know, there certainly were, were cases on both sides why it was you know why it would be bad for either party, whatever decision was made. But the you know the, the relevant outcome for me is that the tribunal has has said the purpose of this legislation is not to protect tenants. Yeah, the yeah. decisions that we make will not will not be based on that principle. And it's a, it's a, just, it was a classic move of, of Daniel Andrews to present one thing in the media and publicly have this, like, something that's very consumable yeah. that people like, like no moratorium on evictions, and then very few people are going to drill down into circumstances like this and see what the actual reality of it is. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are, there are certain protections in there. So, you know, you can't be evicted for rent arrears, but it's because you lost income because of COVID, so they're the particular cases, but there's not that broader sort of protection that we, we might have expected or that we, you know, would have wanted. I guess the other thing about that is that the, the reasonable and proportionate test is based on individual circumstances, whereas HAG, uh, our position at HAG has been that part of what makes it a reasonable and proportionate should be weighing the public health concerns, the broader social concerns about evicting people from their housing in a time when social distancing, you know, remains really important, you know. But that's, I guess that's my main rant for today. And on that, because we've also mentioned last month that they've they've now deferred uh, some of the new tenancy rules that were to come in now, come in at the end of this month, till next year. And you raised last year sometime the problem that this meant that landlords could move in ahead of it coming in and, and take action against tenants which they couldn't take once it came in. Now, that time period's been extended as well, I guess, so tenants are going to suffer in that area as well. So we still don't really know. Consumer Affairs have, have made some suggestions that they're going to introduce some of those provisions that, that have been delayed. They might come in earlier. Like, it's all a bit... It's it's more an area of confusion than, in, than something where we could say yes or no, that's a problem. Um, definitely for many tenants, there's a concern that landlords will act in a retaliatory way, that they'll be getting no reason notices if there is a gap period where that's possible. But we certainly hope that consumer affairs will come through and deliver the protections, at least in that respect, that tenants need. Mm. There's also a, I don't know if it's not something that you don't necessarily get into at HAG, but lifestyle communities, there's the residents there in all sorts of, in all their places are complaining because they apparently pay $115 a week and 214 for couples uh, for various facilities, uh, clubhouse, pools, gym, library, billiard room, etc., none of which they can use during the coronavirus, and they're all saying they should get their money back, but the company's resisting that and saying it still has to maintain those things, although they're not being used. Are you aware of that? Yeah, I mean, certainly that's a common problem across lots of kinds of retirement housing, whether it's a retirement village or a rental park or, or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. People pay for facilities and services that have been unavailable for some time. There's certainly an argument that in, in some cases they're entitled to that money back. 
and I would encourage anyone who's in that position to get some advice, whether that's from a, a lawyer or you can give Hag a call. Right. Also, Hag will handle that sort of that sort of uh, inquiry. That's good. Uh, we'll do our best. <laughs> Wonderful news for you, Shane. Yes. Uh, another look. I was thinking also that with the lockdown and isolation, a lot of single older people whom you deal with, I imagine that many of them would be feeling quite isolated. And is it having any impact, say, on their psychiatric or mental health or whatever, and their demeanour generally during this period? Are you are you seeing signs of that? Um, I mean, definitely people are stressed, of course. I mean, there's been some uh, public kind of research about the the likely mental health effects longer term of the lockdown. Uh, I'm not really sure that that's looked specifically at older people at a group. We've, you know, at HAG, we've made an effort to get in touch with our members individually to call up all of our members and see how they're tracking. And I think, you know, people people are quite resilient, um, but people who are already in stressful situations, obviously this only makes it worse. And certainly we've seen people coming through our intake service, people who need help with housing, whose concern, whose risk of homelessness has become worse or, or they perceive it to be worse because of the, the more stressful consequences of being evicted in a pandemic. I mean, one interesting, sorry, this is quite a tangent, but one thing that um, HAG has been working on and will be coming out soon is a report on the specific housing issues of older LGBTI people. Um, and one of the findings there from some of the, from the surveys that were done is that, sorry, I'm trying to remember the figures off the top of my head, I think 16% of people reported that they were at risk of homelessness, but over 30% of people reported that they couldn't afford their rent in private rental. Uh, it was quite incredible to me that that's you know, le- less than half of the people who can, can't afford their rent consider themselves at risk of homelessness. Uh, it, it conveys the extent to which people just accept being unable to afford their rent as a normal part of the housing system in Victoria. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And also how people think about homelessness, because I think people don't think about it as sleeping rough or being on people's couches or being between homes for a period. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of that, what about the um, situation with coronavirus where people who were experiencing homelessness were housed temporarily? Have you seen the effects of that in your work? Hmm. I mean, not me personally. I'm not sure if our intake service has. I know the government just announced some additional funding and resources to try and make sure that the people who were in, in kind of crisis housing in hotels and things like that uh, you know, won't be kicked back onto the street. Um, I, I hope that the government will actually come through with that in some way because, of course, the key question is whether there's actually housing for those people. Yeah. And, I mean, sometimes it seems like the best way to actually get yourself uh, public housing in a timely way is to become politically embarrassing to the government. Certainly when the some of the government buildings uh, that have been acquired for the East-West Link were squatted, the people who were squatting them got public housing offers radically faster than anyone else in Victoria had managed a public housing offer in some time. So, you know, hopefully the government will be kind of forced to find a place um, to move people more permanently. Yeah, well, that would be interesting. Um, just we're listening to City Limits. Um, we're on the air on 3CR and we're joined by Shane McGrath from Housing for the Age Action Group. And um, Howard Morosi is here, Kevin. Um, so... We might let Shane go and um, get Howard on the line. Yeah, well, Shane's welcome to well, James, Shane's welcome to hang on as well, and he's quite welcome to stay around and join this discussion. We'll keep talking about these issues. Um, sorry, Kevin, I am going to have to pop off, but can I just say one thing quickly before I go? We're recording this on Monday, and it's actually World Elder Abuse Awareness Day today, um, and that's something that often impacts the the tenants that Hag works with. 
Um, elder abuse is, is one of the least understood, least widely recognised and most underreported kinds of family, family violence. If people would like to learn more about that, I really encourage them to, to do some research. Um, Seniors Rights Victoria, which is the, the legal centre that specialises in elder abuse, has some fantastic resources, um, especially if you or someone you know might be experiencing elder abuse. So thank, thanks very much for, for having me. Thank you, Shane. Well, thank you, Shane, for coming on. Thank you. And we can, um, put a, we can put a link up to Seniors Rights Victoria on the podcast and on the website as well for anyone who's listening. Okay, and Howard's on the line. Howard, I do want to talk, obviously, about this new home builder proposal the government's come up with. But before we get to that, have you anything else you'd like to report on at this stage? Uh, yeah, look, there's a lot. So, look, why don't, why don't we just talk about home builder, then we can move on to the other stuff as well. <laughs> All right. Well, okay, home builder, go with it. For those who I'm sure people are aware, but just explain very quickly what it is and um, why we probably don't think it's such a great idea. Yeah, okay. So um, the Morrison government has um, promised something like $700 million for people to renovate their own homes. Let's have a look at the details. So $25,000 grants to build a new home or start a major renovation. Um, $700 million. It's called Home Builder. So um, it's going to be limited. So not everyone is going to be entitled to it. Obviously, if you're too poor, you're not going to be able to avail yourself of it at all. Well, well, on that, the, the, uh, the, the renovation aspect of it, uh, you have the renovation has to be worth at least uh, 170,000, I think it is, isn't it? So uh, not many people could afford that. Yeah, so the renovations have to be between, well, it could be a new home. If you can manage to build a home for um, below $750,000, you're entitled to it. So the limit is, the minimum is 150,000 and the maximum is $750,000, either renovation or new home. Yeah, that's um, a lot of money that... Uh, a lot of money that doesn't seem to be going where we think it ought to go. Well, it's a one out of 10. You know, like the only reason I give it one is because I could think of worse things you could do with the money, but also uh, because it is, it's it's $700 million out of a total of spending something like $70 billion during COVID. So it's something like 1% of that budget. So it's not an excessive amount in that sense, but it's money that could be used a lot better, obviously. Um, and again, you know, like I've said many times, there's a bias towards the construction industry in Australia. And this is a typical example of it because we're talking about things that aren't essential being prioritised before things that are essential. Now, the obvious essential thing is public housing. That $700 million actually wouldn't, when you think about it, wouldn't actually go a very long way towards meeting our need for public housing. Um, but that just means there should be much more spent on it. Yeah, so just to give people an idea of how much would need to be spent, we're in the, in Victoria alone, we need probably close to 100,000 new public housing units. And so you're talking about 300,000, probably $300,000 construction per unit. So that is a lot of money. But the government is splashing out a lot of money but the construction cost of public housing gets recouped over a lifetime of the public housing. So it's not just spent money. It's, it's an investment that's going to be recovered. Is that because it saves money, um, Howard, for, from all of the other interventions that are then funded in terms of community housing, community services, homelessness services, interventions, health, health issues and stuff like that? Or is there a different reason that it, that it recoups that money? 
that is that reason but there's also the fact that public housing tenants do pay rent believe it or not right. it's not it's not free housing yeah you know um public health might be largely yeah. free but that's not the case with public housing public housing tenants pay 25 percent of their income and it's been calculated that at the moment public housing does break even there have been a few accounting uh, procedures which are under question and if if you put aside those certain accounting procedures that the state government has adopted, public housing does pay its way. And the other thing, of course, is that if you um, just expanded the uh, threshold for public housing, the, the upper threshold, to equal what it is for housing associations, you would obviously be getting people with a lot more mm. income in and therefore you'd be getting more rent. Those people are now over in the housing associations we want to see them come back to public housing and uh, help in, you know, help with the budget for public housing as well as all the other reasons for public housing over housing associations. Anyway, just to get back to the, um, the Morrison uh, scheme, so the pre-renovation value of the house must not exceed $1.5 million, but that still leaves a lot of houses which are eligible and where the property owners are quite wealthy. It is only for homeowners, so it's not for investors. So that's a positive. Maybe that helps it to qualify for the one out of 10. It's a temporary scheme. It'll last till the end of the year. The aim is to build 30,000 new homes by Christmas. And there is means testing as well. So, But it's not very strict means testing. So singles who earn up to 125,000, that'd be nice. Couples who earn up to $200,000, hardly low-income earners. And given that you're going to have to still find a lot of money to um, to pay for it apart from the subsidy, you're going to be talking about high-income earners. Yeah, that, and in fact, there's already speculation that for the big companies that are land and house um, developers could see prices go up. They'll just start exploiting it and put their prices up because of the, the demand that will suddenly come on. Yeah, there's that. And there's also the fact that it's a process of gentrification. And anyone that ever watches... Uh, one of the uh, housing renovation shows or Escape to the Country uh, will know that re- even just a makeover can increase the uh, value of the house substantially. So if you're talking about a substantial renovation, that's that's aimed at increasing property prices as well. And that is one of the aims of the government. You know, it's, it's opposite to what it should be doing um, because its aim, the aim of both of the coalition of uh, LNP and also the ALP, we can call them a coalition because that's how they've been acting for the last 40 years, is to maintain property prices because it's a form of investment for investors. It's not aimed to be there for people to have a, an affordable, uh, economic, secure home. And uh, so this is in line with that as far as I can see. Do you think that's, do you see that as part of the ideological objection that governments have to public housing because it will disrupt the whole market economy of housing? Yeah, that's right. Public housing takes people out of the competitive private sector. I don't like to call it a market actually because a market in economic theory is something that delivers economic prices and quality and quantity, whereas this this does not, it does not do that. It does the opposite of that. So it's a private system. And it's a competitive system. And uh, contrary to what we're told by neoliberals, competition doesn't always deliver good pricing. Well, especially if they interfere with it in in their own interest as well, like these kind of grants. Yeah, true. But even 
if you take the competition out of the housing market, you will see prices come down. And uh, that is more like that's more like a, a market situation. So it's actually a situation where uh, the private sector, left to its own competitive devices, actually delivers a worse outcome in economic terms from the point of view of the obsolete user. Yeah, and on the renovation front, Howard, uh, small tradies are already complaining that the one fifty thousand limit uh, up that you've got to got to be to to get it will only benefit the bigger builders and the bigger companies rather than the small tradies anyway. Yeah, well, I guess there is that. But I don't actually believe that, we, as I keep saying, we shouldn't be designing our economy based on a particular type of employment structure. So we need to actually look at what our outcome want, you know, should be and then design our employment on that basis. So just because we've had an economy which produces too many, too many houses and too much renovation, which generates a lot more employment than otherwise, doesn't mean we should continue to do so. The people in the construction industry, if we think, and it's, it's an if, if we think that we should have less housing construction, then we, we should uh, go ahead with that, have less housing construction, and the uh, people employed who have been employed in the construction industry, we have to find an alternative solution to them. That might be working in other other industries, or it might be job sharing. But to actually set a level of output of a particular product, in this case housing, to generate employment is putting the argument the wrong way around in in, in good economic terms. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. And what else did you... You said to lead on to what else you wanted to talk about. What else did you have to talk about? Oh, okay, well, uh, I'll... I'll start with today. We've had a, an article in The Age by Clay Lucas about what's happening in Ascot Vale. So for people who may not know... Today, but today Bale, being, just to correct, today being Monday, of course, and as we record. Yeah, sorry about that. So Monday's Age, uh, two days ago. So we've got uh, Clay Lucas talking about the plan. Uh, Ascot Vale is, uh, estate is slated to go and uh, the state government's now got approval from the uh, local council, Mooney Valley, to start demolition for the first 10, uh, 10 blocks of public housing. Ten, It's said here to be 50 blocks. My, I'm not sure if it's 50 or about 35, 40, but regardless, it's something like 20%. It's the Dunlop Avenue set of blocks of houses. Um, so that's, that's going to be demolished unless some miracle happens and the community gets together and stops it. So the article makes a number of good points. It quotes a housing activist, Claire Hansen, who lives on the estate. It also quotes the academic uh, Libby Porter. He's been a guest on this show as well. Yeah. Now, it, it makes a number of good points, but it actually misses out on the central point. The central point is that public housing is being replaced by housing associations, properties, as well as private property. So it actually fudges that point. It talks about destruction of, of the public housing on the estate and then it talks about replacement with a mix of social housing and private housing. So social housing can be either public housing or housing associations. And the point we know from previous experience that all of the new constructions are being housing association properties and not public housing. So the article should have made that point. Um, it didn't make that point. 
it's, a, it's one of the major points, so therefore it's another flawed example of the age reporting of the issue. It does make the point that um, the uh, properties are sound, they're in sound condition. Claire Hansen made the point that they can be renovated and they could last another 100 years, which is probably true. And um, she also made the point about the Morrison government wasting money, as we've just talked about. Claire made the point there's no structural problem with them, uh, and I believe that's the case as well, whereas the government is saying that they're run down and they need to be replaced for, for that reason. So the article does expose the government on that ground, but as I said, it misses the most important, one of the most important points about public housing versus housing associations. Mm. Yeah, and increasingly we, or not increasingly, it's about the same level all the time now, but social housing is used almost exclusively by people except ourselves, I guess, when they refer to what we'd consider public housing because, in fact, it's so much of it is not public housing anymore, as you're saying. That's right. And the, the danger is that even public housing ad- advocates will slip into that terminology and will lose that whole distinction. Mm. And the government will actually one. Uh, it's um, it's campaign to fudge the whole issue. Mm. Yes. We've got about, sorry, we've got about 10 minutes left of the show and um, you're listening to City Limits and we're joined by Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing. And um, sorry, Kevin, did you have another question for Howard? I was just going to raise with Howard because he might, he may not know the answer to this, but I raised, I raised with Shane the impact of isolation on older people in terms of their mental health in this crisis and uh, I was thinking also of we've you know we've quoted a number of people say from um, particularly African communities who felt they had a real community in these public housing estates where they've been dispersed across Melbourne somewhere uh, are you getting any feedback about the impact on those people who have been isolated away from the communities they've been in for some time at all? People that have been moved out of the demolished... Yes, and you know, out to the outer suburbs somewhere where they've, they've lost that contact with those communities, yeah. Uh, look, actually, no, no, I haven't heard feedback about that. It's an interesting question. I'll try and find out for you. Um, but I'd imagine that they've, they've started to reintegrate with their new... Because there are new communities, you know, that they are communities. Mm. Estate, so. Yeah, but of course they're stuck in isolation, so you can't necessarily get out to mix with the new community and if, in this period, that's all. Yeah, well, you can still talk to your neighbour across the fence. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Play a bit of music, annoy the hell out of them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> another, another factor that's occurred during this period is that the the rental market has um, reached a stage where there's there's much higher levels than normal of of vacancies in the rental market because one, the there's the child, all the students aren't here, a lot of any of the students aren't here. Uh, immigration has dropped, and uh, there's been apparently some some reduction, some discount in rent. So you know much about that? Yeah, I do actually. Just got to give me a sec to find that my notes on that. So yeah, there, there has been a, a substantial reduction in rent, and it just proves the point uh, about what we're saying about the private sector that the private sector does depend on, you know, competition between buyers so or, or renters and immigration has unfortunately been used to uh, make things worse for the ordinary home buyer or would-be home buyer and the ordinary renter. Now, the solution uh, doesn't necessarily have to be stopping immigration. It could be intervening in the market because, you know, like the... So I, should, I said market, I mean the private sector. So the government can intervene in the private sector by public housing where you don't have that same pressure 
on um, on rents by competition and can also intervene by rent control. Uh, it can also intervene in in the home ownership market by controlling uh, house prices. Lots of ways you can control house prices. So immigration doesn't necessarily have to mean an increase in rents, but it but because of the way the the sector is managed by the government, that's that's its aim. Its aim is to increase rent because that's return for uh, for investors. So we've had a, this this is going back about three or four weeks in the uh, Fairfax media. Anglicare did a an analysis and found that of seventy thousand listings, there's one thousand within budget of people on job seeker, um, whereas before it would have been nine. So. Nine out of seventy thousand, up to one thousand now. That's a significant difference, even though it's still not enough. But it's also job keeper of job keeper jobs. The one, the other one, job seeker. It, it's been doubled, of course. So that would impact on that as well, wouldn't it? Yeah. So if if they took it, if they took job seeker back down to Centrelink, Newstart, you would still you would still largely go. So I, actually, it conflates two things. It conflates the drop in rents. And, and the actual increase in income of people. But we do also know that rents have been falling. So rents have gone down. When In the first 30 days of COVID, uh, rents in capital cities dropped 3% for houses and uh, roughly 3%. And that's, that's only in 30 days. So that's only the start of it because obviously people are already on, on uh, leases which fix their rents. But as those leases start to expire... You can renegotiate, and um, with less competition from uh, from students, uh, there's more vacancies, which means that you can negotiate a better rent. So we would expect those rents to keep falling until such time as we, we get more students or more immigration coming in. Before we finish up, I have a, a question for Howard. Did you have anything else, Kevin? Or Not at this point, no, no. You go away. Yeah, so how just we on the 4th of June the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness put out a media release about a policy plan to respond to the issue of people who have been experiencing homelessness who were temporarily housed during coronavirus and what will happen to them after the coronavirus restrictions have have been eased. Did you have any comments or information about that? Yeah, sure. Um, look, my, my real problem with that group is that they are yet another NGO campaign which doesn't advocate for public housing. So they're advocating for, again, social housing, but they really mean the housing associations. When you look at the, the groups that make up the campaign, you're talking about the Salvos, you're talking about launch housing, and uh, I think it was Uniting Care, and they're all part of the um, community housing housing association industry, which has been responsible for the drop in public housing. So they, they're in competition with public housing. They have been taking public housing, and unfortunately, that is the one of the main aims of that campaign. The other thing is that they keep duplicating campaigns. Um, they set up new websites. They employ new staff they have ceos it's a very expensive business what they're doing they just keep saying the same thing effectively just updating the figures you won't find any any anti-privatization or public housing advocates in those groups um, for good reason obviously and so that's the problem i have with that group 
you know, like if if they were successful in what they're asking for, you would have an increase in um, in housing, but you would have the same problem of housing associations and not public housing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Great. All right. Well, Meg, we're obviously running out of time. We we need to give a plug again to the current the current fundraiser at 3CR. Meg, if you could let people know why we desperately and we do need money because we haven't got the normal radiothon and the normal way in which we raise money, but we still need money this month. That's right. Usually June is our radiothon extravaganza. And we usually would have a special show and we'd ring up people and basically coerce them into giving us money. Right, Kevin? Yes. In fact, our regular show would have been last Wednesday in a normal year. And we'd now be basking in the luxury of having <laughs> ra- having raised all our money, but uh, <laughs> we're no longer basking. <laughs> we, we'd be filling bathtubs with cash and just <laughs> enjoying the splendour. But right. um, obviously it's, it's a different time. We can't be in the studio. Um, we're still, we have hundreds of volunteers putting together all of the different shows, whether they're music or politics or current affairs or um, special interest shows or gardening. And um, so much happens behind the scenes at 3CR as well to do grassroots support of all the campaigns that you hear about and support the community to be strong for union rights, for workers' rights, for Aboriginal rights, for women's rights, having conversations about different ways to change the world and make it better. We can't do it without support of our listeners. So we know it's an unusual time, but if you can uh, give anything to uh, 3CR to help us through this time, please go to our website, 3cr.org.au. And um, you'll see a little a little area there where you can donate. Um, so thank you, if you can. Right, a big, big donation to a little area. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah, make, make sure you write city limits as well. That's right. <laughs> Otherwise it won't be accepted, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, are we out of time? Do you think? I've got no idea of what time is. I, I think that's probably it. And we don't want to go too long because um, Karina will have to... Edit away, that's right. Well, look, Howard, thanks yeah. so much for coming on again and um, and giving us again your insightful comments on the whole thing. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no worries. That's right. And um, once again, Meg, thank Karina for doing a great job keeping us on here. Thank you, Karina. You're a superstar. So we'll see everybody next week for the fourth Wednesday of the month. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.